Hello, and welcome back to the Social Contract Research Podcast. This episode is a conversation with Australian Liberal MP Tim Wilson, uh, author of the recent book The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. We talk about trust in politics, house prices, home ownership, uh, the importance of civil society, the generational contract, Michael Sandel's book The Tyranny of Merit, and Minou Shafiq's vision for a new social contract. Hello and welcome to this special event hosted by the Social Contracts Research Network. Uh, I'm Christopher Watkin, uh, Chief Investigator of the Australian Research Council funded project Rewriting the Social Contract and Coordinator of the Social Contract Research Network at Monash University. And it is my great pleasure today to be able to welcome my guest, uh, Tim Wilson, MP. Tim's been the federal member for Goldstein since 2016. He's currently the chair of the Standing Committee on Economics in the Australian House of Representatives. He's a former Australian Human Rights Commissioner. And most pertinently for today, he's also the author of the book published last year, The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. And there it is. Um, he's not the only one, of course, using the language of the social contract today. Everybody from the UN Secretary General to the World Economic Forum to Extinction Rebellion uh, are calling for a new social contract. And so today we're going to be discussing some questions arising from Tim's book, uh, including the nature of the social contract and its place in Australian life. Uh, so thank you, Tim, for taking time uh, to join this conversation today and welcome to the Social Contract Research Network. Thank you for having me. It's great, uh, great to have a conversation about social contract because uh, I think it's one of those areas where people will have a diversity of views about uh, what the nature of the social contract between the citizen and the state is. Uh, but I think there are so many debates now that are enlivening the discussion to make sure uh, that uh, government ultimately meets the expectations and the demands of citizens to be able to live out the fullness of their lives. Brilliant. Well, let's let's dive straight in uh, to the to the main guts of your book. Um, what is Australia's social contract as you see it, and why do you think it needs renewing? Well, I think the conversation around the Australian social contract um, rests on a, an, an important pillar, and I don't say important because it's good. I think it's important because we've got to acknowledge it, uh, which is it starts from the misapprehension that Australia was a uh, a, an empty continent, terra nullius, uh, back at European settlement. Um, of course, it wasn't, and a lot of the discussion around the Australian social contract extends from um, a failure to recognise that past. But because the approach of the Australian social contract was founded on the idea of essentially a clean slate, uh, where European settlers came to a new continent made a decision that they were going to create a great liberal experiment, the conversation around the social contract has extended from there. Um, and essentially, uh, there were many ideas, when the modern Australian um, settlement happened with uh, European arrival, they brought about the ideas and the debates that extended at the time in Europe and then sought to apply them in the Australian context with that concept of a clean slate. So ideas about representative democracy and governance, ideas about the rights and freedoms of people. But critically, what they also did was um, uh, rejected many of the principles that underpin the existing social and political structures in 
principally Europe at the time, and particularly the United Kingdom, which was the legacy of hereditary privilege and a hierarchy in society anchored around um, you know, uh, feudal lords and um, the accumulation of wealth in the hands of the few. The Australian uh, social contract has been about the democratisation of the country, democratic ownership of the country um, through things like private property and ownership and early decisions were made to make sure that uh, there was never uh, what we called at the time the bunyip aristocracy, the idea that you would create a new landed gentry, um, but it's the democratic ownership of our political system through votes and federalism and competitive federalism. Uh, it's around uh, the democratic uh, respect for all people to be able to go out and broadly live out their lives, uh, which we do through a deference to recognising people's rights and freedoms, um, etc. So I think it's actually about a democratic understanding of governance um, but it flows through to all parts of our society. And the, the core theme I raise in the new social contract is to raise the question about whether we're still living up to that ambition. We're seeing concentrations of economic wealth, um, a democracy where people are starting to question whether it's delivering for them, particularly for young Australians. And so I think what we need is a renewal or enlivening of those principles and then starting to reorientate public policy to recognise that the pursuit, well, the, the Australian social contract is ultimately about empowering people to be able to live out the fullness of their life. Yeah, thank you. I, another issue that you raise in the book that, that could potentially threaten this democratic consensus that's the foundation of the social contract today um, is, is this idea of, of the social contract. So you, you bring this out of Paul Kelly's The Australian Settlement um, that, that, that you quote extensively. The idea that the social contract is something that runs across different political divides. It's something that, that's deeper than, than political party politics. And uh, as I read that, I was thinking, is, is, is there a sense in which we're losing that today uh, in Australian society, that, that our politics as well as our media perhaps are becoming increasingly fractured? We've got different news sources for, for different political views, different truths, different realities almost. Do you, do you share that diagnosis that we're, we're losing national consensus to some degree? And, and if you do, what do you think that means for the social contract? I do share the concern that people are allowing themselves to be boxed into bubbles where they're having their own confirmation bias from the media. So if you like, um, you know, a centre-right perspective, you go and read material and consume material for that purpose and the same on, on the left. Uh, and they're self-fulfilling prophecies because we're seeing the huge fragmentation um, of the media. But I think in the end that most people approach public policy, to the extent that people think about public policy, uh, but also, of course, uh, politics from um, their own lived reality or their own life. And I think what those media outlets are doing is reflecting back a world to people that reflects their sentiment in their life. So I think the bigger objective is not to worry about the media. There will always be uh, you know, people who pander to people's different ideals and prejudices the same. What we need to do as politicians is to lead the country so that we actually have uh, the conversations we need to do where people actually find 
accommodation advancement through um, a system that reflects um, everybody's aspiration and opportunity. And, and I think that's what's breaking down. I think we're no longer living or we're, we're at risk of no longer living in a country where particularly younger Australians look at their system of governance and economic systems and say, well, if I go about the ordinary nature of you know, applying energy and effort uh, and educating myself and you know, working hard, uh, that I'll be able to succeed like my parents did. And it's that fragmentation in part that I think is causing the real problem. It's an issue of public policy, not of the media. The media are merely taking advantage of it. And it isn't just economics, of course. There's you know, discussions around environment. Uh, and of course, as people's life stages are getting longer, people are seeing uh, the world more through their perspective of their stage of life, but public policy hasn't adjusted or addressed that around who um, has what opportunity and what responsibility at their stage of life. So I think going after the media um, misdiagnoses the problem or is trying to deal with the consequences of a core problem that we're not trying to solve. Yeah, thank you. You, you spoke there about this idea that, that perhaps young Australians, young people across the world have at the moment, that even if I work hard, um, I'm not necessarily going to be able to build a life for myself that, that is comparable with, with the life of my parents. You, you put me in mind of a book um, that was published recently by the, the Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel uh, called The Tyranny of Merit. And, and in that book, he's arguing that markets don't straightforwardly give people what they deserve. He, he thinks there's a lot of luck and privilege uh, involved. Do, does your view of the social contract require the idea that those who prosper deserve their prosperity and that those who don't prosper deserve their lack of prosperity? I, I wouldn't go that simplistically because, of course, if people don't work then and apply their energy as reward for effort, uh, then it doesn't mean that they get advancement. But if you have, and what I'm concerned about particularly is around concentrations of wealth and how they're handed down intergenerationally, where people are um, inheriting privilege. And this goes to the, the point of the Australian social contract is you start from a baseline where everybody should have equal opportunity. And then the systems of governance and society are supposed to be sufficiently open that it doesn't matter what circumstances you start from, you still have the opportunity to be able to advance your life um, so long as you obviously applied, um, uh, apply effort and energy towards doing so. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that everyone ends up in equal outcomes. You just need to acknowledge that the fact that everybody doesn't start from the same position. Some people, um, unfortunately, have uh, natural inhibitors, including things like disabilities, which might hamper their full capacity to be able to do so. But for the overwhelming majority of Australians, the objective should be that the society and the economy is sufficiently open that they can pursue that. And when you have um, markets, markets are good at the efficient allocation of capital, but without a proper discussion around justice in society, uh, then you end, and ultimately that leads to some discussion around things like redistribution, so that everybody can start with an equal, a broadly equal opportunity. Uh, you're seeing the decline and uh, the social contract as more and more power economic power um, in particular goes into the hands of the few. So um, merit um, is of critical importance, um, but it needs to be tempered against the reality that some people can start from a position of strength and that markets completely left unchecked will only exacerbate that strength. Even Milton Friedman 
the, uh, the great um, monetary economist made the argument, isn't it a debate about whether there should be some redistribution uh, or not? It's actually how much and how and what is the benefit because uh, you need to make sure that incentives still exists in economies and societies to advance humanity rather than just looking at how do we um, uh, uh, cushion the status quo. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. One thing that fascinated me, Tim, reading your book was, was to read it in conversation with similar debates that are going on in other countries at the moment. You know, as I said in the introduction, everybody's talking about the social contract and renewing it. And one, one particular intervention that, that I kept sort of cross-referencing with your own was the British MP Danny Kruger, uh, who uh, late last year wrote a report for the Boris Johnson government called Leveling Up our communities, where he's arguing, um, much as you do, for a new economic model, but also a new social model to go along with it. Uh, and he's he's very big on the idea of strong neighbourhood relationships, a, a thriving civil society, and voluntary and non-profit and faith-based organisations and groups. Um, and that's a note that you strike in your book as well. You talk about the importance of subsidiarity and proximity. Uh, for the social contract. So I, I just wonder if you could expand a little bit on what you see as the role of civil society in renewing the social contract and how we can strengthen that civil society in Australia. Well, I see civil society as critical because I approach um, uh, public policy essentially or deferentially towards everything built from the citizen up. So citizens or, or uh, individuals who form the organic institutions of family as the first foundation of security within a society and uh, an advancement in society. Then, of course, civil society, which is essentially the collaboration of individuals and families as a, as a structure of community. Um, and the, the more you build up that structure from the citizen up, the more you're building the foundations or the pillars of a strong nation. And one of the, I think, the myths we've come to accept in society or prioritisation is to look at society the other way around, which is that, you know, in my case, Canberra or in state capitals, um, all wisdom and knowledge flows and what the decisions they make should be the foundations of how things run. And one of the reasons I utterly reject that worldview, apart from the fact that it empowers me, because politics is ultimately about power, are you empowering citizens or are you empowering central authority? And there's a direct relationship between the two. The more power for the citizen, um, the family and the community, the less for the government and in reverse, uh, is because of what I, we ultimately call feedback loops which is um, if you're in your own circumstance, you are the best position to change your own circumstance. If you have a difference of opinion within your family, it's up to the nature of those family members uh, to come to some sort of accommodation about how to change it. In terms of civil society and community, with, um, from community-based organisations to, of course, local government or local councils, um, if there's a difference of opinion, it's much easier and more proximate to change the outcome uh, if, uh, if the number of people you're seeking to convince is smaller rather than larger. And one of the problems of the democratic deficit and trust in society today is that you've got an individual or a community-based organisation um, trying ultimately to change the power of bodies like the ones that I sit in in Canberra and because that they uh, can't necessarily bring about those change because they neither have the weight of their voice uh, nor the feedback loops which they can so easily affect. They feel increasingly they're not heard, they're not engaged, but they're not listened to, which breeds to a frustration decline in trust. So the more you power you give, 
both voluntarily, so people are participating because they wish, but more closely to them, um, the better the position they are to adjust and change based on how they see the world um, and allow for uh, more, uh, more community-based organisations to immediately respond. Because the greater the distance, uh, you know, there is between systems of governments or, or organisations and the people that they're there to serve, uh, the harder it is for them to be responsive, to understand local conditions and circumstances and the speed at which they can move. And so subsidiarity is critical because it's more representative and closer to people and is better, better in a position to adjust to local circumstances. And I think that's what we've lost in the, the ambition of trying to create a sense of um, probably uh, greater equality and equity in society as it's come at the expense of proximity and responsiveness. Mm, thank you. Um, you've already mentioned a, a couple of times in this conversation this idea of a, a generational divide uh, in, in Australia. And you say in the book it's going to dominate much of the debate uh, from 2020 onwards. Uh, and I think we, we're seeing that already. There's a Financial Times series of events this week uh, that are dealing with anxiety uh, among the under 35s and their precarity uh, in society. Yep. And, and, and part of your own response to that issue is, is your, I guess you could call it your flagship policy of home first super second. You're encouraging people to, to build up equity in home ownership as a priority before investing in, in a super fund. And the, the International Housing Affordability Survey uh, in 2020 ranked 309 cities uh, in eight countries around the world as to how expensive it is to buy a house in those countries. Uh, Sydney was the third most expensive and Melbourne was the fourth most expensive. Australia is the only country with two cities in the top five most expensive. It, what one question I have about this policy is that everyone can invest a bit in a super fund, but but not everybody surely has the the equity to be able to to buy a house, especially in this country. So so how can your policy help the weakest and the most vulnerable in society? That to use religious language, the widows and orphans of Australia. Uh, well, because it will get the structures of people's lives um, in order in terms of the natural progression of people's lives. I think we need to understand the insanity of the economic structures that we have in place today. Until 1990, it was entirely logical that uh, people would save to be able to secure a deposit to buy a home and then they would go on once they've secured home, obviously retiring the debt on that mortgage, but then in addition to that, starting to save for their retirement. And there's a simple logic to why that is. You get the benefits of home ownership from the minute you purchase your home during your working life, as well as your retirement. Whereas, of course, saving for retirement, whether in superannuation or some other financial investment, uh, is predominantly secured at the stage that you no longer work in life. And that's certainly how our modern superannuation system works. So the benefits of home ownership, even if you buy at the average age of an Australian today is about 50 years, the benefit of superannuation is only about 20 years. Now, anybody who thinks that you should prioritise 20 years at the expense of 50 years, frankly, has got rocks in their head. Um, and yet that's what we do. We legally compel people at the stage of life when they have the least disposable income to prioritise saving for something that's invariably somewhere 30, 40 years in advance in the future. And in addition to that, uh, uh, they get the least benefit from comparison to the most important financial decision. And the truth is the rich can take care of themselves. 
the rich are completely capable of buying their own homes um, and uh, will be able to secure their deposit easily either directly through their own savings or because they get the benefits of their parents either going guarantor or providing the foundation for a deposit to be able to buy their own home. It's the poor, it's the low income earners who can least afford to secure funding for their retirement and save for a deposit who need access to their superannuation to get into the market first. So this policy is actually pro-poor and helping those people to be able to secure not just financial security in their working life, um, but during their retirement. And it's of critical importance to understand why. The, the data is resolutely clear. The biggest um, or the most likely um, uh, circumstance where people live in poverty in retirement is not the size of their superannuation balance, which of course for poorer people is smaller anyway and they're going to get the pension anyway. It's actually whether you can afford to own your own home or not. If you don't own your own home in retirement, what little superannuation savings you will have will be eaten in rent and the rising costs of rent year on year. Whereas if you own your own home, your costs um, in retirement for housing are negligible by comparison. But there's a simple logic to it as well. You can save for your retirement once you buy your own home. You can't save for a home once you've entered retirement. And we're seeing increasingly women um, uh, who are particularly post-divorce women, and in some cases, tragically, people experiencing domestic violence, who leave their spouses and then go on in their 40s and 50s and neither have the time to be able to save uh, to buy a home from scratch, uh, but often get significant um, superannuation as part of their divorce settlement, who if they used that money and then had 20 years to be able to pay off their mortgage, would be in a far better position in their retirement than if that was forced to be stuck in superannuation. And that's why you're seeing a rise in the number of women entering poverty in retirement. Um, and I think it's a disgrace that we prioritise and rigidly adhere uh, and force them to prioritise their superannuation when they're going to get the pension anyway over the financial security of home ownership. Yeah, thank you. Just one more on this, Tim. The, the average home loan deposit for, for a first-time home buyer in Australia has, has just gone north of $100,000. Mm. Um, even with super, there's a lot of people who are just going to be priced out of that. What, what policies... Do you need to scaffold this idea of home first, super second with in order not to leave those people high and dry? Well, firstly, the average 35-year-old Australian has a uh, 30, 35-year-old Australian has $38,000 in superannuation. Um, a couple has $76,000 in superannuation. So while, yes, the average deposit now exceeds $100,000, if you're able to contribute thirty-eight dollars or $76,000, that's significantly less than having to start from $100,000 scratch. So super won't be the only basis. You'll need other savings uh, as well, um, and I completely acknowledge that. But there are many policies we need to drive to affect house prices and make it um, or at least slow the growth because that's all in truth we're really talking about. Some of it's around interest rates, some of it's about availability of supply, which goes to planning and zoning regulation. The Reserve Bank has done a study a couple of years ago which found the a third of the cost of a new apartment in Sydney comes down to planning and zoning regulation alone. Um, and of course, uh, there are other policy areas that we have to look at around immigration, et cetera. But if you don't provide um, a home ownership as the foundation for both economic opportunity and economic security in people's lives, particularly in the Australian context, you're actually removing the primary vehicle that we democratically distribute, not just ownership of the nation, 
but also the wealth of the nation. And so you're creating a wealthy, privileged class, which I need to be clear um, that I am currently a member of. I own my own home. So I am, in truth, only going to get wealthier through no effort of my own um, at the expense of younger Australians and new Australians who need that chance. And one of the reasons there's such strong resistance to the home first, super second push from the superannuation sector is because it will disempower them. Uh, they want to maintain their economic influence and control over Australians and their lives through economically empowering them by you being forced to give them your money for as long as possible to allow them to do what they want to do with it. Whereas if you empower Australians to own their own home, you are empowering Australians at the expense currently of superannuation funds. And unfortunately, what they're obsessed with doing is pushing out myths uh, and misinformation into the community and then saying that, you know, if you use your superannuation to buy your own home, uh, that it's going to have an influence on prices. Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that it will have an influence on prices. But if they don't want superannuation to be used to build housing or people build their own home, then why do they make investments in home ownership or homes that they own with your super? Um, it seems a tad hypocritical based on their own behaviour. They're pushing up the price of housing according to their argument, but it's to empower them, not you. Let's keep on this um, intergenerational contract just a little bit longer, but come at it from, from a different angle, if we could. Um, so yeah. in March this year, Minou Shafiq, the director of the London School of Economics, published a book uh, with a title not utterly dissimilar to yours. Her title was What We Owe Each Other, A, a New Social Contract. And uh, in that book, she quotes a, a survey of 140 countries, uh, which, is, which has mixed news. So, so the good news is that each person in the future will inherit twice as much produced capital as, as their parents did, uh, and that each person in the future will inherit 13% more human capital. But then the downside is that um, each person in the future will inherit 40% less what she calls natural capital. Uh, than their parents did due, due to trends like deforestation and rapid species extinction. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about the way in which your understanding of this intergenerational contract addresses this idea of natural capital and its depletion over time. Uh, yeah, it's a good question because uh, it is something I touch on the book, but um, it's not it's not the, the full full narrative. Uh, of it. But in the end, um, there's always been a, a conversation that needs to occur between um, economic capital and, uh, and natural capital and what we inherit. Now, there could be a diminishing in the amount of uh, natural capital we inherit if we have a higher population in comparison to previous generations, which at this point is true. The total that we will all individually inherit will be less um, simply through population growth alone. The question is uh, what we do to become more efficient as a society and utilise technology as a society to diminish our environmental footprint. And I think we, we all have to acknowledge that we've gone through different stages of uh, uh, economic progress uh, and, of course, uh, you know, industrial revolutions which have um, uh, exploited the world's natural resources uh, to advance economic development. But what that's put us in a position for now, and it comes down to whether we seize this opportunity, is a responsibility not just to go back and uh, clean up our act for the future to increase, to at least limit the environmental damage uh, and, uh, and natural capital that uh, the next generation will inherit to increase its abundance. 
um, or at least not diminish its abundance. But actually, it's put us in a position then to go back and address historic, the historical legacy that we've inherited um, uh, and uh, the destruction or the, de uh, uh, the degradation that we've inherited from previous generations. But only rich societies can afford to do that. So to advance um, a discussion around improving our natural and environmental inheritance, in, we have to be in a position to be wealthy to be able to do so. And there was a book, I, I apologize, I forget the name of the author, but it was written, um, I think, two years ago called More With Less. And I talk about it in, uh, in the new social contract about how um, the gain from efficiency that we secure from having a free and open market economy actually puts us in a better position to be able to reduce our environmental footprint per citizen, but then to also be able to turn around uh, and, uh, and clean up um, previous generations act. And so I think it's of utmost importance to have it as part of the conversation um, because it goes to the heart of that concept of responsibility and inheritance, which goes to the heart of a social contract that's sustainable, that connects the generation uh, between generations uh, so that they understand their responsibility to each other and, of course, the generations to come. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, the way in which you frame property ownership, just to circle back to that for, for one more question, uh, in the book is very much that it's, it's the, the, the driver of a lot of other benefits in society. So you, you say at one point, owning private property is the single most important factor uh, in social integration, making people back the status quo. Um, yep. I, I grew up in, in the Yorkshire of the 1980s under the Thatcher government. And, and that sentence leapt off the page to me as a very Thatcherite thing to say. It, it, it resonates with something that Margaret Thatcher wrote in the, the Times in 1985. She said, I, I want a capital earning democracy. Uh, every man and woman a capitalist. Uh, and then she says, housing is the start. If you're a man or woman of property, you've got something. So every man in a is a capitalist and every man a man of property. And I'd, I'd be interested to know, is, is that a vision that you share? Do you think that this idea of property ownership first strengthens the social contract? Because of course, something else that Margaret Thatcher is very famous for saying is that there's no such thing as society. Well, uh, there, there's a longer part to that quote um, uh, that uh, people often make remarks about, which uh, acknowledges the fact that people have um, responsibility. And I think she shares the vision ultimately that I do, which is it's not there, there is a, such a thing as human connection and mutualism, and it's critically important. But you start from the citizen up; you don't start from society down. Um, and in terms of her. Uh, observations around property ownership, it's, it's resolutely clear, but politely, I'm not going to give Margaret Thatcher credit for that. Uh, you just need to go and look at the language of Sir Robert Menzies, the founder of the modern Liberal Party, particularly in the post-war era where he was making these observations, in particular, the role of home ownership um, as being the natural manifestation of the little platoon, so particularly the family unit, and ultimately turning them into, in his words, quote, little capitalists, because of course, Owning your own home provides that security for your family, but then becomes the foundation that you can then go on and secure greater economic participation, particularly in things like establishing a small business. Uh, and of course, going back to the point I raised before around securing your uh, financial security in retirement. But the critical point is not just an economic one, though that's obviously very important. 
Um, it's that it, it creates that sense of investment in the status quo, which means that you have an interest in the conservation of the existing social and economic structures. And this is a lesson that we, you know, we learned from the French Revolution. If people have no investment in the existing society, whether it's economic, social participation, the like, and are treated uh, as second-class citizens, if they have no interest in conserving it, they'll have no hesitation in overthrowing it. And I think that you know Australian society is fundamentally good. I think our liberal democracy is good. I think an open, competitive, free market economy is fundamentally good. But we need to recognise that there are underpinnings uh, that that uh, strengthen it, and we need to strengthen those if we want the rest of society to conserve itself. Because what we see, particularly, and I draw reference to what's happening in the United States and the United Kingdom after the global financial crisis, it was that many young people felt. Uh, felt a big sense of the burden of responsibility and legacy uh, and the brunt of uh, policies that followed thereafter. So they were less likely to own their own home, they were less, more likely to carry debt and obligations, and they had no investment in the status quo. So they increasingly voted for revolutionary candidates. Now, I acknowledge that neither of those candidates uh, were successful at that time, but the issues that they were raising and addressing climate, housing, and housing was a critical part of that conversation, um, the environment generally, and, and a sense of equity within society where they had their fear go and didn't feel like the systems of governance were rigged against them, still remain. And I want young Australians to not follow the path of young Americans and young Britons. I want them to have the chance to be able to live out their, the fullness of their life, to have an investment in the status quo, to see how they can live their lives advance through our economic, social and political systems and to have a voice and to build on the traditions and the inheritance of their grandparents and parents for future generations as well. Tim, as we begin to, to draw this conversation to a close, I, I want to take a step back from these policy issues and, and think more about broader vision. Now, I know you say that the new social contract is not a book about vision, but I'm, I'm going to invite you to, to think a little bit in those terms, if I may. Sure. Um, in, in another interview of yours that I heard, you, you described yourself as a, a non-believing cultural Anglican, which was a phrase that, <laughs> that intrigued me. And, and, and as yeah. I reread your book in the light of that, I, I saw some expressions that, that seem to be drawn from, from religious social teaching. We've got stewardship, we've got subsidiarity and so forth. And so I, I just wonder if you could unpack a little bit what, what you mean by non-believing cultural Anglican. And, and I'll invite you to reflect on the extent to which you think that has a a role in shaping the arguments of this book? So what I mean by non-believing cultural Anglican is that I'm not a person of faith, uh, but I grew up, um, and I grew up in a family, you know, largely without faith, but I did go to an Anglican school, and so, and I see my values are very much anchored in the, the cultural traditions of Anglican, sorry, I've got a cold, excuse me, um, I've been sneezing all day, so it's definitely not COVID, just for clarity, um, but, yeah, uh, but, um, uh, it's those values that underpin uh, Christianity which go to the core of liberalism itself. In fact, I start the book talking about how liberalism in part evolved out of Christian teaching, not because I'm religious, but because what it actually did was change the structure in part of society and shifted people's sentiments away from the organising unit of society, mostly being around family, to um, uh, to the idea of, uh, of, of the individual and people having equality and equality of uh, an equal dignity uh, 
uh, in that individuality because of their relationship to God and how that then went on um, to inform uh, people's broader discussions around um, political environments. So, um, so that's the basis in which I uh, explore these issues. And yes, um, that's why there is an, an interlink between um, the values of Christianity uh, and uh, and liberal political um, thought. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the, the guider, but it, you can't ignore its the foundations. And I, I think you've picked up on a, a critical point, which is the book I wrote is not actually one that focuses on projecting a vision. That book will come, just for clarity. Um, but it's actually to say, well, what, what are the foundations of our society and the structures which work uh, and that we would seek to advance um, for future generations? You, you just dropped a little bomb quietly in there. The vision book will come. Uh, can you give us any hints <laughs> on sort of the, the, the broad brushstrokes of, of that project and, and what stage it's in at the moment? Oh, it's very much in its infancy at the moment, but but the point of this book was to say actually we have some structural problems that I think we need to address. The it, the book doesn't give you know a lot of clarity; it gives some insights into where I, my thinking's going uh, on how to address them. But um, I think as a modern society, we spend too much time where people have different solutions to problems, and nobody's actually properly defining the problem. Um, because when you properly define a problem, you can solve it and actually the solution is self-evident. And I think too much of the problem or too many of the issues we look at today, we look at what I would say is horizontally, where we're looking at who's in, who is it impacting at this time rather than actually reframing the conversation to what I'd say is vertically, which is across people's life cycles. Because um, when you uh, do things at this time, it creates a static idea or understanding about our responsibility to each other. Whereas the uh, when you're looking across people's life cycles and of course between generations, I think you get a better perspective about what your responsibility is today and what you can do for the future. And, and, and a critical part of that is also acknowledging that situations change. I start the book in part by referring to Paul Kelly's thesis in The End of Certainty about the Australian social contract and what underpins that um, at the around the time of federation and that it constantly needs to be renewed and reviewed in light of changing circumstances. And we need to do work to keep our economy and society open if people have a sense of ownership today so that it can prosper tomorrow. But that will present its own challenges further down the line and we need to address them as they come along as well. So in part, the book will be, the next book will be very much reflective of the situation that we're facing then. And I suspect, unfortunately, uh, it will become, these problems will exacerbate rather than have uh, been resolved by then. Lovely. Well, if, if this is volume one and volume one is, is the diagnosis, then I think your, your diagnosis of uh, the problem as you see it is very clear in the new social contract. And we shall await volume two uh, for your prognosis uh, in due course. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for taking time uh, to speak with us today. I'm aware this is budget week. It's a very busy time for you. Uh, and I'm very grateful uh, that you've uh, given this time over to discussing these really important issues today. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It was great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Contract Research Podcast. This occasional series features seminars, conversations and interviews related to the contemporary social contract. It's hosted by the Social Contract Research Network at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. For more information about the network and further resources on social and practical questions related to the contemporary social contract, please see the show notes or search for Monash Social Contract Research Network. <laughs>